Saturday. It's a, a little disorienting. Because no one knew what to think. But in the midst of it all, a promise was being fulfilled. You have an advocate with the Father. You have an advocate with the Father. It's 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I write these things to you that you may know that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate. This is a, a Greek word. We're going to start right out with Greek, and I, I promise you're going to be glad we did. I promise, I promise, I promise. It's a Greek, Greek word. The word is paraclete. Parakletos. And it gets a lot of different translations throughout Greek. In the Bible, it gets translated as your comforter. So in some places, it says, this text would say, you have a comforter with the Father. You have a comforter who's with the Father. In other places, it talks of this as a person who is like a lawyer, who, who stands there arguing your case. He's your lawyer with the Father. Most often, it's translated throughout Scripture and throughout other places in the Greek language as something closer to one who testifies on your behalf. One who bears witness about you with the Father. You have someone who is sitting at the right hand of the Father who bears witness about you. I write these things to you so that you may not sin. I like the fact that, that John says, my little children. My little children. John's an old man by the time he writes this. He's probably at least in his 90s. We don't know exactly how long he lived because we don't know exactly how old he was when Jesus is, is, uh, when he is following Jesus around as a disciple. What we do know is that he's at least in his late teens. So this would make him probably in his 90s. And if he's a little older, he may even be 100 by now. He may be the last person who actually walked and talked with Jesus. He's the pastor of the church, church in Ephesus. And he has been twice. He pastored there in the beginning. Then the Romans, in an attempt to kill off all the Christians, hauled him away. They tried him. They found him guilty of being a Christian and a, uh, a, a non-worshipper of the emperor. And therefore, they tried to boil him in oil. They attempted to make a French fry out of him. They literally boiled a pot of oil and dropped him into it. And he survived. Not knowing what to do with this miraculous survivor... They got rid of the evidence, and they sent him off to a little island, a little Greek island for a vacation, sort of like an Alcatraz vacation, where he stayed as a prisoner for several years, during which he wrote the book of Revelation. After he had been there long enough, and I think one of the Romans probably read the book of Revelation and said he's lost his mind, so get to send him back now. He got back, and he began again as the pastor of, F, of, the, F, of the church at Ephesus, stayed there until he 
eventually died of old age and natural consequences. One of the few disciples to die under those circumstances. He writes his friends. This is one of the last things he writes in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He writes his friends in the church. He writes a note. It's a small note. It's, it's not, not very long. And he says to them, my little children, I would love it if you wouldn't sin. It would be great. I'm writing these things so that you will understand things that will help you not to be caught up in sin. But if you do, I want you to know there is one standing with the Father who advocates for you, who, who has a testimony about what your life is like, about what you experience, what you suffer, how hard it is to live on that little planet that is the armpit of the universe. You have an advocate with the Father. It's Saturday. It's Saturday and the tomb is full. We talk about the empty tomb all the time. We rarely talk about the full tomb. It's Saturday, Good Friday, this Friday of the crucifixion, has passed. They've entered into the Sabbath, and the tomb is full. Jesus is in the tomb. He's died. It's created a tremendous amount of confusion. The disciples, in fact, are broken. Everything they thought they understood has just been destroyed. Every hope they had in Christ, gone. They don't know what to think about it. Peter, of the, the greatest of them all, having denied Jesus, is probably in the corner of the upper room weeping. In fact, there's probably a lot of tears in that upper room that day. Saturday. People's hearts are broken all over town. People whom Jesus has healed are thinking about this. What would happen if they were, if they were to need him again? They thought he was the Messiah. They thought he was the Savior. They thought he was that prophet that Moses talked about. He had to be. And he walked on water. He raised the dead. What more could it possibly be? And yet, the tomb is full. Saturday. The tomb is full. The ones who should be the most excited this day, the Pharisees, the priests, the leaders of the religious movement that is Judaism at the time, should be the ones most excited, but they're anxious. They're anxious enough to go see Pilate on the Sabbath. They're anxious enough to go and talk to the Romans about getting some guards to place around the tomb on the Sabbath. They go and they request a guard. Pilate, who's fed up with these guys completely, says, fine, have your guard, do whatever you want. And he tells them, make the tomb as secure as you can. And I wonder if there's a little sarcasm in that comment. Go ahead. Give it your best shot. And they do. They take the guard to the tomb. The guards are there standing outside. They put a Roman seal on the tomb to make sure no one moves the stone. The disciples don't come and steal away the body of Jesus and make this a worse mess than it was last week. Saturday. The tomb is full. The disciples are heartbroken. The leaders of the church are anxious because Sunday's coming. They just don't know. Jesus is waiting for the moment when he rises to the right hand of the Father and bears testimony to what it's like 
to be a human under sin, to be our advocate. This is Blackwell Island Asylum. In the 19th century, if you were accused of being a lunatic in New York, you were taken to Bellevue Hospital. Bellevue Hospital was where they would examine you to see if, in fact, you were some sort of lunatic. The culture didn't know what to do with people who were lunatics. They just decided to lock them away and keep them away from the rest of the population because they were scary and they might be dangerous. So after an examination at Bellevue, they would take you off to this lovely little place where you would spend maybe the rest of your life and not unlikely the rest of your life isolated from the rest of the world. It's an interesting place, part prison, supposedly part rehabilitation hospital, but rumors start to creep out about the place. People who have worked there, the occasional unusual person who who has actually gone home from there, begins to tell stories about the mistreatment of the people who are in there. Stories start to creep out about what a horrible place it is, about how awful the circumstances are there, and how people are treated. And as these rumors creep out, people are saying, no, it can't be that bad, no. And then the people who actually work there are saying, no, it's not that bad. I don't know what these people are talking about. Crazy people say crazy things, you know. So somebody decides that they need to do something about it. The local newspaper decides to send one of its... One of its uh, Press agents. It's a young woman. She's 23 years old. Elizabeth Jane Cochran. Her, her pen name is Nellie Bly. She will become famous under that name. She's 23 years old. And they ask her if she'd be willing to go to Bellevue, pretend that she's insane, and get herself committed to see what's actually going on in the asylum. Anybody want to volunteer for that job? Nellie has been courageous her whole life, maybe a little too courageous. She's known to have spoken up in places where she shouldn't have and gotten herself in trouble before. She's gone off to Mexico in the 1880s because she didn't like the pay she was getting at the newspaper where she was working. She was about 20. She stayed in Mexico learning about the people there and just exploring the world. She comes back and she gets this job. In 1897, she goes in to the asylum. She checks into a boarding house and starts acting crazy. Messing up her hair, disturbing the people in the boarding house. And pretty soon, the manager of the boarding house has her sent to Bellevue Hospital. At Bellevue Hospital, some people look at her and she was really afraid that she wasn't going to be able to to trick these experts into, into letting her get into the asylum. And so she tried to maintain crazy as long as she could. And later in her reporting about it, she says it wasn't that all, all that hard to be considered insane. They asked her some questions. They were kind of crazy questions. And she found herself, in fact, in the asylum. On Blackwell Island, she decided the, from the moment she got there, she would act sane to see what happened. So in fact, when she arrived, she began to act normal. To the doctors, air quotes, on the island, acting normal meant 
you're crazy like a fox. You're so crazy that you know how to behave normally to try to get people to stop thinking you're crazy. And so for the entire time she's there, it it ended up being 10 days. She acts completely normal. They did not stop treating her like everyone else. She started talking to other patients, patients who, like herself, had been placed there with no really perceivable reason for being there. She spoke about being bathed. A nurse took her into a room. They poured cold water over her head, and the nurse scrubbed her down with a brush. And the rinse came, another bucket of cold water over her head. They then, without drying her, gave her her her, uh, wrap for the evening, which was uh, a woolen uh, tunic sort of a thing. Sent her to her room, wet hair, in a cell, no heat. She shivered through the night under a blanket that was not long enough to cover both her shoulders and her feet. At the end of the 10 days, the newspaper asked that she be sent home. You see, what what was her saving grace was that someone on the outside of the craziness was going to advocate for her. At first, they didn't want to let her out. They said, no, we can't have this crazy woman walking around in the public. No, that's impossible. We can't do that. And the newspaper said, no, she works for us. We sent her there. Now they were really more interested in keeping her. And the lawyers finally started to line up, threatening to sue on her behalf if they didn't let her out. And so finally they let her out. I don't really want to spend too much time except to say Jesus came to the earth, a place like Blackwell Asylum, so that he might get us out. Jesus came to this crazy world, into the Jewish culture, into the city of Bethlehem, when it was under the hand of one of the craziest people in all of history, Herod the Great. A true lunatic was in charge of the place. And Jesus arrives as a defenseless little baby. Now God picks the time, right? God didn't send him here haphazardly. And when he shows up, it's the craziest time, perhaps in the history, of the area around Jerusalem. Jesus chose to come on the errand of giving his life at a time in history when capital punishment was crucifixion. He stepped into this mess we find ourselves in at one of its lowest moments, at a time when things were at their worst, at a time when the, when the suffering he would experience would be one of the highest in the history of mankind. At a time when Herod, who was known for just killing anybody who he felt was against him, would have access to him as an infant. He came into that place, into that setting, to, take, to make it clear that we had an advocate with the Father. Someone who would speak on our behalf about what it means 
to feel what we feel, to understand our brokenness, and to live where we live. Someone who'd felt the craziness that we feel every day. And I need you to, to embrace the reality that this is the crazy place. That this is Blackwell Asylum. That this is that isolated little island in the universe that all of us are in quarantine so that the crazy that we have, the special kind of crazy that infests our heart, doesn't spread into the rest of the universe. That's where Jesus decided to come. That's how Jesus decided to enter the world. So it's Saturday. And Jesus lay in Joseph's tomb over the Sabbath. But he also had an advocate. Jesus really died. Jesus really died. The one who had raised people from the dead by the power and authority of heaven actually died. Crucified, murdered, and died. That Saturday, at the lowest point that anyone could think of in the life of Christ, a man who we'd never heard of before in the story of Jesus stepped up. A guy named Joseph of Arimathea, one of the council, that Saturday, he had made the preparations. He had wrapped Jesus in the linen that he wears that day. The coverings on his body, the spices that had been placed there, the embalming, the little bit that they could get done in the three hours between the time that he died and, and the sunset. A guy named Joseph of Arimathea had stepped up and shown himself to be a follower of this now dead man. It's an interesting time to choose Jesus, isn't it? Joseph of Arimathea makes himself known. Nicodemus makes himself known after the death of Jesus. I wonder how many Christians there would be today if the tomb were still full. Saturday, the tomb is full. And the two outspoken followers of Jesus who are existing on the planet as far as we know are a couple of members of the Sanhedrin, the leading class in Israel, Joseph and Nicodemus, boldly standing in support of the man inside the tomb. Jesus told us about his advocate. Joseph and Nicodemus were great advocates, but they weren't going to be able to create a resurrection. Jesus tells the story, we heard it a minute ago from Carlene, of his father. I like Mike Peterson's view on this. Mike said, this is like Jesus bragging about his dad. The prodigal story is like Jesus bragging about his dad. You know what that was like. You remember that, right? Those of you who had dads you could brag about. 
my dad can beat your dad kind of a stuff. My dad knows more than your dad. That elementary dad that you used to raise up. This is the prodigal story. It's the story of a father and a son. The story comes to a climax. As the father sees the son coming down the road. You heard the explanation. The son has come to the father and said, Hey, I'd be better off if you'd be dead. Give me the money that you owe me when you die. And the father... now. Most of us wouldn't do it. This indulgent, gracious, loving, caring father gives him the money. How many of you would give him the money? How many of us would give him the money? Most of us would have said, forget you. In fact, I'm writing you out of the will. Your big brother actually does what I tell him. But he gives him the money. He runs off. We don't really know what he's doing. We get the idea of his behavior by his big brother's imaginations later in the story. All we're told is that he wastes the money on prodigal living, hence the name of the story. He wastes all the money. Anybody in here felt like you've wasted some of the gifts of God? Anybody in here feel like you have wasted some of the time God gave you? Some of us waited until we were in our 50s to even accept God and wasted the first 50 years. Some of us have exploited our talents for our own gain, wasted the kingdom's property. Anybody feel like perhaps you've wasted some of what God gave you? Well, this guy ends up empty-handed feeding pigs and you don't have to make the sound for me. The lowest possible description of what a Jewish boy could do. Stuck feeding pigs. Now you live in a suburban community. You probably haven't been around a pig farm much. Suffice it to say, it is really smelly. Really smelly. Um, before uh, before this became more of a suburbanite haven, there used to be some pig farms out in Loomis, in particular. One of our one of our church members lived on the same street as one of the pig farms, and you you'd come down the street and turn onto their street. And when you turned onto that street, there was no question where you were, because it just stunk up the whole area. And what was interesting to me is as, as the area began to change, somebody built a really beautiful like McMansion right next to the pig farm. And I wondered if they had ever visited the place before they built the house. Because there was a real aroma in their neighborhood. This is where this man lives. And he's feeding these animals and he's such an intimate relationship with them that he starts to think, man, I am so hungry, I'd like to eat what they're eating. They're not eating the classic American scraps from the house and the table. They're not eating slop. They're eating actually carobs. So don't ever tell me that that's chocolate. <laughs> the pods that they're eating, it's carob pods in the, in the uh, modern translation of what that is. He looks at these things that are pig food and he thinks, man, maybe I should just eat this. And in that moment, when he hits his lowest point, isn't it funny how we often have to hit our lowest point? 
when he hits his lowest point, the Bible says he remembers his father. And he says, even even the servants in my father's house have enough to eat. And so he heads for home, not intent on becoming his father's son, not hoping that he'll be accepted back in, not even hoping for a place in the house. He asks that he might be a hired servant, someone who lives in the community but works for his father. We pick up the story as he's coming down the road over the horizon where his father can see him. Now, before we get to what happens, remember what the father's been doing the whole time. Watching the horizon for the return of his son. Watching for that familiar gate. You know how it is, right? We parents, we can tell our kids by the way they walk. You know, when they become mature, they pick up a certain gate. They're 15, 16 years old, and they sort of have a way of walking that you recognize. And he sees that familiar gate on the horizon. And his eyes begin to focus in more tightly, and he becomes aware that this is his son. And the Bible says when he realizes it's his son, he runs out to him. While he was a long way off, his father saw him. Filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son. Now stop and catch the word. Filled with compassion for him. He's been out wasting the father's money, right? He's been out living a prodigal life. Who knows what he's been doing? And yet his father is filled with compassion because he knows there's nothing out there to fill the space that's in here. And those of you who have been wandering around looking for a place to, way to fill that space know it's true. You can fill it for a minute. It can, it can catch you for a second. You can say, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about this. But very quickly it becomes empty. How many people claw their way to the top only to discover it's just a vacant space? There's really no joy there. He has compassion on his son. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What does this son smell like? A pig. A pig pen. A pig farm. He runs to him. He wraps his arms around him, getting the smudge of his son's sins all over himself. And he kisses him. The most intimate possible connection between two human beings. He kisses him. Taking in the aroma of his sin. Wearing it on his very face. He kisses him. The son begins his speech. You know, you've you've had a speech for your father before, right? You've had a speech you have to give. You've been rehearsing it and his son's been rehearsing it too. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You have your speech for God. I'm 75 years old. I'm 17 years old. And I've just been messing things up. 
And I really don't deserve any grace from you. I really don't deserve any kindness. The answer to that statement is, you're right. None of us deserves what Jesus offers. No one does. I'm not worthy to be called your son, but the father. Get that phrase. The son comes, stinky, smelly, flies are following him. The father runs out to meet him, wraps his arms around him, plants a big old kiss on him. And he's, as he's kissing him, the son is saying, I don't deserve to be your son. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't deserve to be. But the father. It really doesn't matter how bad the son feels at this point because the father. But the father said to his servants, quick. Now notice he doesn't even talk to the son. He just starts dealing with the people who can make a difference in what's going on. He turns to his servants and he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Who's best? Who has the best robe in the house? The father. Whose robe is being wrapped around the son? The father's. Bring the best robe and put it on him. Now, what about the dirt and the stink and the smell of the pigs? Bring the best robe. Cover up the stink and cover up the dirt. And cover up the residue of the pigs. Make my son as if he had never been in this mess. Put the best robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. Hmm. This isn't a wedding band. This is check writing privileges. You've got to get this or you don't get the story at all. He puts a signet ring on his finger. It's check-writing privileges. And the father says to the son, still smelling like a pig, there are no debts that you can take on that I cannot cover. If you miss this, you miss the enormity of God's grace. That when he calls you home, when he wraps you in the robe of righteousness, slips that ring on your finger, says there are no debts, past or future, that you can get yourself into that I can't cover. You cannot write a check that will turn my account upside down. If you are here today and you doubt that, This is the point of grace in the scripture. This is what grace is all about. This is what the sacrifice of Jesus was about. That's what's going on in the full tomb. A payment is being made. An account is being established in your name. And the account is backed by the treasury of heaven. And the ring is slipped on your finger. And he is saying to you, there is no debt, past or future, that I cannot cover for you. It matters not where you've been. And today I know the worst of your future. And I'm still putting the ring on your finger. I'm still covering you with my robe.
because he wants nothing more than to have you home. Bring the fatted calf. Kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You see, sitting on the porch in his rocker, apparently with a pair of little green binoculars, was the father, his advocate, waiting for an opportunity to cover for him. Jesus lay in a full tune. It was Saturday. And a transaction that began with the closing of his eyes with a shout of agony and with the passing of his last breath. An exchange for the death of mankind has gone on in that tomb, that full tomb that Saturday. He's buying the right to advocate for you and for me. Saturday and the tomb is full but Sunday's coming it will be a mere few hours until in the early mornings of dawn an angel shows up and the Bible says this angel when he showed up shook the place says there was a violent earthquake and the stone was rolled away and I love the picture painted by the, by the uh, Gospels. And the angel, who was as bright as lightning, sat on a rock. Put his hands in the pockets of his angel uniform. And waited for the ladies to show up. And then they came. They've got more linen. They've got more spices. They're intending to complete the job that was rushed on Friday to make an appropriate burial of their now dead Savior. And he's not there. The tomb is empty. He is risen. He is alive. And he is alive forevermore. Because he had an advocate that was the Father. See, here's the thing. Jesus is not arguing our case with the Father. He's advocating for us alongside, next to, in conjunction with the Father. God is not our accuser. God is also our advocate. If Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God in human flesh, then it's not a separate advocacy. It's a, it's a continuous advocacy. We have a really bad image of this father of ours that he sits up there in heaven trying to find some way to keep us out. It's not what the scripture says. 
The scripture says that Jesus and God are one. Their hearts beat as one. Their destiny, their destinies are as one. Their decisions are as one. Before the foundations of the earth, they set the plan in motion for the redemption of mankind, knowing that we would fail. And he accepted you, he accepted me at the beginning of our walk with him, knowing that we would fail. The call of Christianity is the perfection of the follower of the Father. And the reality of Christianity is that a broken follower of Jesus has a very difficult time making it through one day. We want to live like Jesus, but we have a real hard time getting there. And so the last apostle alive writes a short note in 1 John to the people who are trying their best to follow Jesus. And he says, my dear, my dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. That's my hope. Isn't that everybody's hope? Don't we wake up every morning, those of us who are following Jesus, don't we wake up every morning and say, boy, maybe this will be the day. I'll get through a whole day without embarrassing dad. Maybe this will be the day. I won't blow it before I get to work or before I leave the house. My little children, I write this to you so that so that you don't sin. It's no longer you. It's no longer who you are. It's no longer your values. It's no longer what you want. Your heart has been changed and transformed and now you want to follow Jesus and you want to walk in his steps and live like he lived and be like he is. But if anybody, any body sins. If anybody does sin. I want you to know we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father. Not against the Father. With the Father. We have an advocate with the Father hand in hand. We have an advocate with the Father. We have one who sits next to the Father at his right hand, who knows what it's like to be a broken human being, who knows how hard it is to wrestle against sin, who knows what difficulties you have living in the planet, living in the space where you live. We have one who understands. Tempted in all manner like as we, suffered all the things that humanity suffers from birth to death. We have an advocate with the Father, one who stands next to him, not in opposition to him. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see, it's Saturday and the tomb is full, but it's not staying full for long. It's Saturday and the tomb is full and people are all messed up about it. It's Saturday and the tomb is full and Jesus is paying the price for my sin and for yours. It's Saturday and the tomb is full, but it's not the end of the story. The story ends on Sunday morning when the tomb is no longer full. We do not worship a dead Savior 
who gave his life so that we might have one, we, we worship a risen, risen Lord who is our advocate with the Father. 